Matthew chapter 9, or 6 rather, Matthew 6 verses 9 through 15, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to teach us his word uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the Lord's prayer that your son taught us to pray, that we might know how to approach the throne of grace rightly. Lord, we ask that you would teach us by your spirit even now, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday, we, we looked last Sunday at basically an overview of the Lord's Prayer. We took the whole thing, kind of the uh, the bird's eye view uh, of the Lord's Prayer. And we saw last week that Jesus in this prayer gives us the Lord's Prayer to be our great pattern or model prayer. Uh, the, the one by which we are to model our own prayers after. We also looked uh, last Sunday at the pattern or the outline of the prayer itself, of the Lord's Prayer itself. And we saw one of the things that it teaches us and reminds us to, to keep in mind when we pray is that we have to learn to put first things first in prayer. And what's the first thing, the first request that you ask for when you pray according to the Lord's Prayer? You pray for the hallowing of God's name. In fact, we saw the first half of the Lord's Prayer, the first three of the six petitions or requests, Focuses those requests focus on God first, God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will being done before it comes to our own needs. Although it does include, we are taught in this prayer to pray for our own needs, our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins, and being kept from temptation and being delivered from evil. How many of us can honestly claim to pray, especially about the first half, to pray like that on a regular basis, to put God's the hallowing, revering of God's name first in our requests and to pray for the coming of God's kingdom and even that his will might be done before we even pray for our daily bread. Well, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to start looking at the Lord's Prayer in more detail, kind of going from looking at the forest to looking at the trees, so to speak. We're going to consider the Lord's Prayer line by line, one request at a time. But before we get to the first request... I thought it would be uh, good for us to take some time to think about what it means to call upon God as our Heavenly Father. Before we actually get into even, uh, you know, let your name be hallowed, what does it mean to call upon God as your Father or our Father in Heaven? Now, you might think to yourself, maybe you're sitting here thinking, this is going to take forever. This sounds kind of excessive to spend an entire Sunday, an entire sermon looking at what amounts to one small part of one very short verse. But I think that kind of goes to show that most of us, including myself, probably, for the most part, fail to appreciate how how significant and fail to appreciate the magnitude of what it means to call God our Father. We're so used to doing it, we probably take it for granted. We probably don't put much thought 
into it. In his book on the Lord's Prayer, Thomas Watson, he has a whole book on the Lord's Prayer itself. He spends no fewer than 37 pages on what is often called the preface to the Lord's Prayer. The preface is our Father in Heaven or our Father who art in Heaven. 37 pages before he even gets to the first request. As we're going to see this morning, the Westminster Shorter Catechism spends an entire question, question 100, dealing with this exact thing before it gets into the specific requests. Uh, not to be outdone by that, the Heidelberg Catechism, which actually was written quite a bit before the Shorter Catechism, devotes no less than two full questions to, the, to our Father in Heaven, to what it means to call upon God as our Father in Heaven. So evidently our Reformed forefathers in the faith, they clearly thought that this was an important thing for us to think about, to understand, and to keep in mind as we pray. They would have us not rush through and without considering what it means to pray to God as our Heavenly Father or as our Father in Heaven. Well, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 100, it says the following. It says, question 100, what does the preface, that's our Father in Heaven, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father which art in Heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence, as children to a father able and ready to help us and that we should pray with and for others. And so if you were following along with that, the catechism basically gives us three lessons, three things that we are to learn and understand about prayer found in the preface itself, in the address of calling God our Father in heaven. The first thing that we are to, to learn to pray from uh, from this uh, this phrase is that we are to pray with all holy reverence and confidence in God. The second lesson is that we are to pray to our Heavenly Father as children to a father. And the third lesson that we are to learn from the Lord's Prayer, from even the address of the Lord's Prayer, is that we are to pray with and for each other. And so we're going to use that catechism question and answer as kind of the outline of our sermon this morning on the, the phrase from the, the Lord's Prayer of, of talking to God as our Father in heaven. So the first thing that we are to learn and, and think about when we, we call upon God as our Father in heaven is that we are to learn from that, that we are to pray with all holy reverence and confidence. We are to pray with all holy reverence and confidence. And the first thing of that is we're to, we're to pray with a holy reverence for God. In other words, even in our prayers, we are to fear God. That should be something that characterizes us when we pray as well as everything else in our life. Now the Bible, you might know the Bible has a lot to say about the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. Those phrases, if you were to do like a concordance search, you will find those phrases and phrases like that all through Scripture, all through the Word of God. And yet how rarely do we hear of these things today, even in the churches? How often do we hear of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, even in Bible-believing churches. In Romans chapter 3, for example, the Apostle Paul, if you know the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, what he kind of does is he's, he's showing us from the Old Testament the total depravity of mankind outside of Christ. He's, he's telling us that we are dead in sin, and what he does is he quotes from a lot of the Psalms and other places, kind of one quote after another strung together to show our real situation, our real condition outside of Christ, and at the very end of that list of quotations, he quotes Psalm 36 1, which says this There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
That's the capper. That's, that's kind of the last word when it comes to depravity. Is you could, you could almost say he's summing the whole thing up, that outside of Christ we have no fear of God before our eyes. We just don't fear God. And it shows in how we live. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that we are to fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes 12.13. You can also look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8 and later on. Hebrews 12 verses 28 to 29 points us back to Deuteronomy 4.24 and says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, if you have the King James, it's with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. You know, there are, there are many in the church today that will tell you that somehow they will imply or tell you straight out that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Well, the Bible does not teach that. God does not change. We sang about that this morning even. We sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And what, is, what does the writer of Hebrews do? The writer of Hebrews says, You know that God in the Old Testament that was a consuming fire, that they had a fear of God when they approached Him, He's still the same way. And we still have to offer God acceptable worship. And what is acceptable worship to God? It's not frivolous. It's not anything like that. It's with reverence and awe or godly fear. We ought to have a familial or a family-type fear and respect for our earthly fathers. The Ten Commandments teach us that, doesn't, doesn't it? We are to honor father and mother. We are to fear, in a, in a right sense, our earthly fathers. And if that's the case, how much more should that be true of us with respect to our earth, our heavenly father? Maybe, maybe there's a connection between those two things. There's so little fear of earthly fathers in our day. There's so few fathers in our day that maybe that has something to do with uh, the lack of the fear of God as our heavenly father as well. There should be a holy reverence for God when we pray. The first request of the Lord's Prayer also teaches us, teaches that very same thing, doesn't it? What's the first request in the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed, let your name be hallowed, or revered as holy. We're taught to pray that God's name might be revered as holy in the very first request. Our prayers should be marked by a reverence or fear of God. Are your prayers marked by a holy reverence for God? A fear of God. They should be. He's not just our Father, but He's our Father what? In heaven. And that He is our Father in heaven tells us, it reminds us of His infinite glory, His infinite power and majesty and infinite holiness as well. We have to know who it is that we're approaching in prayer and be mindful of that. Well, the second thing it tells us uh, there is that we're also not just to have holy reverence, but we're to pray and approach God with confidence. With confidence in God. We are to pray to our Heavenly Father with all holy confidence as well as all holy reverence. To call upon God and to call upon Him as our Father ought to lead us to great confidence in prayer. When you call God your Father, that should give you much confidence that God is more, more than willing to hear and answer and give you help in time of need. How do you think that might change how we pray if we thought about that? If we consider that God, the God of the universe is our Heavenly Father... He has adopted us in Christ. To call upon God and to call upon Him as our Father ought to lead us to great confidence in prayer. How might that change how we pray? How much more devoted and earnest might we be in prayer if we possess that kind of holy confidence in God as our Heavenly Father? That He's not just, he's not just able to hear an answer, 
which who would doubt that? We know God's all-powerful, but that he's not just able, but he's also more than willing to hear and answer. That's what confidence in prayer is about. It's believing that because God is my heavenly Father, he is more than disposed to hear and answer. That he's more than willing and eager to hear and answer our prayers. The Heidelberg Catechism, in its treatment of this phrase from the Lord's Prayer, it uses the same words, the same almost the same exact phrase as the Westminster, although the one came after the other. It talks about this reverence for and confidence in God being, quote, the foundation for our prayer. The foundation for our prayer. A holy reverence and confidence in God is is where all real prayer has to start. You won't pray without those. If you don't, the less confidence you have in God that He's willing to answer, the less you're going to pray. And the more confidence you have that God loves you in Christ and by His mercy is more than willing to hear and answer and give good things to His children, the more you'll pray and the more earnest you'll be in your prayers. It's really hard to pray and to persevere in prayer without a holy confidence in God, isn't it? So do you, do you lack confidence in God in prayer? Often, we often do. I do. We probably do as well. Do you want, these are rhetorical questions, uh, do you want more confidence in prayer? No, no, Pastor, I don't want more confidence. Everybody wants more confidence in prayer if we pray. Do you need more confidence that God is, is, is not just able, but is also more than willing to hear and to answer? Then, If that's the case, then we need to spend more time considering and meditating upon the fatherhood of God and your adoption as his child through faith in Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink writes the following. He says, If the words, Our Father, inspire confidence and love, then the words which are in heaven should fill us with humility and awe. These are the two things that should ever occupy our minds and engage our hearts. The first, without the second, tends toward unholy familiarity. The second, without the first, produces coldness and dread. They have to stay together. If all you think about is God's holiness and power and and majesty, you might fear to draw near to him at all. And if all you think of him as, as the old dawdling man in the sky, your father, but not your father in heaven, we might be frivolous and worldly in our prayers. They must go together, irreverence and holy confidence. That leads us to the second thing, the second lesson that the words our Father in heaven should teach us about prayer is that we are to pray and draw near to God, quote, as children to a father, able and ready to help us. We pray to God as children to a father, and a father is able and ready to help us. That's where, that's where confidence comes from, doesn't it? Those two things are very closely connected. This is, this is where that kind of confidence springs from. If you're praying to God as a children to a, as a child to a father, you're going to pray with confidence. Not in yourself, but in your father, in your God. Our confidence in prayer can never really be found in ourselves. I think sometimes it's probably, maybe that's why you struggle in prayer, and sometimes it's why I struggle in prayers, because we look, we spend too much time looking at ourselves and not enough time thinking about God and His goodness and and perfections. If you're looking within yourself for reasons for confidence in prayer, you'll never find it. What you'll find is discouragement. You will be nothing but discouraged from praying if you're looking to yourself for reasons for confidence in prayer. God doesn't answer because we are good. God answers because He's good. Quite a difference there. But if you're a Christian, 
If you've been united to Christ by faith, you have been adopted as a child of God in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And if that's the case, then you have God himself as your heavenly Father. Otherwise, Jesus Christ would not have taught us to pray the way that he did. And if that's the case, you can pray to God and should pray to God as a child to his or her father. That's how you should address God every time you pray. Think of God not just as God, but as your heavenly Father in Christ. Now, many, many wrongly believe and presume in our day and maybe throughout time that God is everyone's Father. This is a phrase you might hear, the universal fatherhood of God. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that because God is everyone's creator, that he's also everyone's Father. The Word of God actually tells us quite the opposite. None of us, not a single one of us, is a child of God by nature. The only one who is a child of God uh, by nature is, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are only children of God by adoption in him. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, Paul says this. And you, this is, remember the old show, This Is Your Life? Paul's saying, this was your life. If you're a Christian now, here's the way you used to be. The way we were. Uh, you and you were dead not sick, not crippled. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of them. Not children of God, Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And, and think about that. Paul's putting himself in that same lump. He's saying, yeah, me too. We, this was us. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dead in sin, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, enemies of God, objects of God's just wrath for our sins. That is the Bible's description of every human being that's ever walked this earth besides Jesus Christ who is outside of Christ. Every single one. It is only uh, in Christ, by faith in him, that we are saved from our sins and adopted into the family of God by his grace. John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13 says this. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you've received Christ by faith, this morning, if you've believed in his name, then you have the right to be called a child of God. And you can call upon God as your father in heaven if that is the case. Now, the Apostle John has a lot to say in, in the book of First John about what you might call the distinguishing characteristics uh, of a child of God, how you can tell if you're a true child of God. Many claim to be children of God that are not. First John 3, verse 10, for example, he writes this. He says, by this... By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You ever hear the, the, old, the old saying, there's two kinds of people in this world? Well, John subscribed to that and, and wrote about it in Scripture. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, there's going to be a family resemblance for those who have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that starts with, according to John in that verse, the first characteristic or thing of family resemblance that we should notice 
is a holy life. Not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but a holy life. That's one of the first or chief marks of that family resemblance. Hebrews 12.14 tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Not perfection, not sinless, but holiness. The general tenor of your life is going to be one of seeking to follow God's commandments out of love for God because of his love for you. The second mark of family resemblance that John talks about in that verse is that you're going to have a sincere love for the brethren. What does he say? Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you do you delight in their company? Do you delight in their fellowship? Do you delight to worship with them, serve alongside them, even to help them in their times of need? If so, John would have you to be to be firm in your knowledge that you are a child of God. You ever struggle with assurance of your salvation? These are things John, according to the Holy Spirit, would have you look to. Do you love other Christians? Or do you avoid them like the plague? If you have a sincere love for each other, that is an evidence of you being born again and of being a child of God. If not, you must search your heart and consider well whether or not you truly know the Lord and really have the right to be called a child of God yet and if you're in Christ or not. Again, our confidence in prayer that we might pray as a child to his Father is a confidence in God, not in ourselves. It's a holy confidence in God that we pray to God as a child to his Father who is, what does it say, who is able and ready to help us. Once again, we're pointed back to God's perfections, even his mighty power and steadfast love. God, God is, because he is God, what does the Bible say in Ephesians 3.20? He is, quote, able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. There's no lack of able to, there's no can't with God. He can do all things. The scripture says nothing will be impossible with God. Not most things, not a lot of things, nothing. There's nothing God can't do because of his power and majesty. And because in Christ he is our heavenly father, you can know, you can be assured that he is not just able, but that he is willing to help you in your time of need. In other words, he is willing to hear and answer your prayers. That might be the most mind-boggling thing you ever think about. Why would God answer my prayers or your prayers? Why would he bother? But he does. Not because of us, but because of him. He's willing to hear and answer our prayers. Look at Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. The Lord Jesus himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, the same general passage that we're in with the Lord's Prayer, he says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, when we have a lack of confidence in God to answer, to hear and answer our prayers, when we think of him as someone who is unwilling or less than willing to hear an answer, we're insulting God. We're saying, you know what? I'm a better father to my children than God is to me. You know, most, even some of the worst earthly fathers among us, and what does he say? If you then being evil, what's he saying about God? Well, God's the opposite of evil. 
And if you evil people do good things for your kids, how can you possibly think God doesn't take care of his own? It's an insult. Even if it's an unintended or implied one, it's an insult to God's glory and majesty. How much more, he says, will God, as our Heavenly Father, give good gifts to those who ask him? You know, if, if you have children, if you've had children or grandchildren, you know, all of us, our resources are quite limited. Right? There are things that your kids or grandkids might want that there's a line somewhere in your bank account that you can't cross, that you don't have the, we're not the federal government, we just can't keep writing checks, you know, when you can, but it won't, won't work very well. God doesn't have that problem. But, but you want to do good things for your kids. You want to do, you're disposed, even on your worst day, you want to do good things for your children and grandchildren. Well, how much better than we are is God in doing that? Not only that, but if God has given us his only begotten son for our salvation, if you give him up to die on a cross for our sakes, how could he possibly hold back lesser things from us? Look at Romans 8.32. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. Our problem is we think of the all things as too big. Christ is the biggest thing God could ever give us. Everything else is gravy. Everything else is small change in comparison. God, think about this. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a believer in Christ and have been adopted into his family, God has given you both his son for your salvation and your and his Holy Spirit. He has put his Holy Spirit within you. How then can we imagine or believe or insult God in thinking that he won't be merciful to us and won't be well-disposed to hear and answer our prayers, those prayers of his adopted children. He's given us the biggest things he could possibly give us. He's given us himself. How will he not, along with his Son and his Spirit, give us all things? In other words, theology matters. What you believe about God matters. What you believe about God as your Heavenly Father will affect how you pray. And so we have to have our minds renewed by the Scriptures so we might know God rightly and have a right thought and right estimation of him as our heavenly father if you pray as a child to a father who is able and ready to help us you will learn to have great confidence in prayer because you'll have great confidence that god is able and willing to help you just as a father is to his child well the third and final lesson that this opening of the lord's prayer teaches us is that we ought to pray with and for each other we are to pray with and for each other. Now, why do we say that? Why does the short, why does the shorter catechism say that? It just somebody that wrote it decided there had to be three points. No, it says we are taught to pray what? Our Father in heaven, not just my Father in heaven. The whole Lord's Prayer is written the same way. In his Institutes of the, of the Christian Religion, John Calvin puts it this way. He says. Now, we are not here taught that each of us should individually call God his Father, but rather that all of us in common, together, should call him what? Our Father. This serves to show how much brotherly love we ought to have for one another, for we are all together children of one Father. To call God our Father in heaven forces us, or it should force us, to be mindful of each other, of other, our other brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, we're taught this all through the Lord's Prayer, aren't we? How many times in the Lord's Prayer do you see the words we, us, and our? My count was nine times. It's a pretty short prayer. 
as far as that goes. Nine times you see the words we, us, or our in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer should prevent selfish praying. The Lord's Prayer should cause us to pray for each other and to pray with each other. How often should our prayers include the needs and concerns of each other, of our brothers and sisters in the Lord? How often should we pray for one another? And how often should we actually pray with one another if we understand the fatherhood of God and our adoption in Christ into the family of God? Do do you ever just stop and pray with each other? It doesn't actually just... Often it doesn't come naturally. You almost have to make it formal, but do you ever just stop and pray with each other? It should be the most natural thing in the world for Christians to pray with each other. Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to a few things, and one of them was the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers. That's referring to prayer and public worship, but it's also, I think, referring to the corporate prayer, praying together as a church. You remember when Peter in the book of Acts was in prison? What does it say the church was doing on his behalf? The church got together and they were praying for him. Remember he came to the door, you can read it yourself, and he's knocking at the door because the angel got him out and the girl at the door thought he was his ghost. She ran in and said, Peter's, or the people thought it was. She runs in, Peter, Peter's here. Oh no, no, he's probably already dead. You know, we're, it's like we're praying, but you know, God's really not going to answer and he's already at the door. But the church prayed together and we ought to pray together as well. The word of God says in Isaiah 56 and Mark chapter 11 that God's house is to be what? A house of prayer. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord work in us by his Holy Spirit even this year that we might become a praying church. We might learn to delight to pray for and with each other. A couple uh, practical applications. One of the things you can do is if you're able to do so, join us for the prayer meeting on Friday mornings. I know everybody can't make that. It's an, it's an awkward time if you work at 7 in the morning. But if you can't make it to that one, talk to us about starting another one. If we have to have a second or third prayer meeting, you won't see me complain. It would be a good thing if we prayed with and for each other. Make it a point to ask each other during the fellowship time, when you see each other during the week, how can I pray for you? And actually mean it. How often have I, and maybe you as well, I've told someone, I'll pray for you, and then... The words kind of just fall to the ground. Pray for each other and pray with. You know, and if, and if you're worried like me that you might forget, don't just tell them you'll pray, with, pray for them. Pray with them right there on the spot. Even if it might embarrass them. You'll, you'll get over it and we'll learn to pray. What wonderful things might our Heavenly Father be pleased to do in answer to our prayers, the prayers of His beloved children in Christ, if we would pray. He gives good gifts to His children who pray, especially when we pray with and for each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning that we can even call upon you as that, that because of your great grace and mercy towards us in Jesus Christ, that we can call upon you as our Father in heaven. We don't even begin to understand how great that privilege is and how awesome a thing it is to be able to call upon you in prayer at all, much less to call upon you as as our Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you for this great privilege that we have, Lord. We thank you that you are both able and willing, more than willing to hear and answer our prayers, not because of us, because we are not worthy of being heard, but because you you are pleased to hear and answer because of your great mercy and kindness and the abundance of your steadfast love to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that as a father has compassion 
on his children. So you, Lord, have compassion on those who fear you. You remember our frame. You know that we are dust, Lord. And we ask that you would work in us even now. Teach us to pray, even as your son taught his disciples. Work in us by your spirit, a spirit of prayer that we might call out by the Holy Spirit to you, Abba, Father. Uh, Give us great reverence for you in prayer. Work in us that we might have greater confidence in you in prayer, that we might be encouraged more and more to pray, to seek your face, to seek the glory of your name, uh, the coming of your kingdom, the doing of your will on earth as it is in heaven, and even to seek our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins, uh, and to be kept from temptation and protected from the evil one, Lord. Work in us this year that we might become a praying church, a praying people, praying families, and praying Christians. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see your answers and make us quick to give you thanks for all that you've done. Thank you for condescending by your grace to even use the imperfect prayers of your sinful people and imperfect people for the working out of your purposes and your will. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.